Okay, so... <clears throat> right, here we go again. Shall we? God. All right. It's like getting back on a bike. <laughs> or something like that. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Tokyo Jazz Joints Podcast. It feels like it's been a while, but then, you know... Nowadays, everything feels like a long time. What about you, James? How are you, how are you doing in Tokyo? Well, um, I just picked up um, a very special bottle of uh, Black Bush Bushmills, which was um, distilled in sherry casks, so to speak, from the label. So I think I'm doing very, very well. Things are very, very funky and uh, well hydrated. I hear things are not the best in uh, your part of the world, though, from the news. In Ireland, you are still locked at home, yeah? Uh, well, I wouldn't say locked at home. No, that sounds a bit sinister. But uh, we're certainly <laughs> locked down and uh, within the back within that five kilometer limit again. So uh, perhaps there's a there's a connection between that and uh, you know some more episodes of the podcast. Who knows? Uh, but it's been quite the journey, James, with the podcast. Uh, we never imagined, I suppose, that we'd get to uh, this many episodes over forty now. Uh, and I'm, I, I really think we should start by just saying thank you to all our listeners. Even though we haven't had some episodes out in the last uh, few weeks, uh, keeping an eye on SoundCloud there, it seems like the listens uh, keep ticking over. People are still accessing uh, old and new episodes, and that's fantastic to see. And thanks to all of you uh, for the love, uh, for reaching out uh, and sharing your comments. Uh, shout out to Justin. Uh, shout out to Miles as well, who've been in touch recently uh, and are really supportive, really encouraging and enthusiastic about the project. And it, we really appreciate that because it keeps us going. Uh, it makes us realize that what we've done uh, is definitely worthwhile. Uh, and, and not only that, but it appeals to a wider audience. So Yeah, we've been getting a lot of good feedback. I've seen some really good comments. Um, I got a couple of personal mails from people who were asking, are you guys going to come back soon? And uh, I was so happy to to answer one of them this week to say, getting ready for our uh, Friday night ritual again. I've missed it. So, you know, and I think that, uh, well, 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 we'll keep it secret for now, but we certainly have a couple other things planned uh, in addition to the recording that we're going to make tonight. But you know that, you know that uh, it doesn't include, you can't count emails that you've sent to yourself. You know that, right? I I take great offense uh, at, at your continued slander at my tech abilities. I'll have you know that I was very successful in putting up an Instagram story uh, just the other day. So, and it okay. got 100, 100 hits. So how do you like that? Good grief. Yeah. It's nice that you're talking about hits. That, that just brings you right back down again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you peaked there with Instagram story. And then as soon as you said 100 hits, it was like, yep, Granda's back. Anyway, listen. Uh, let's crack on. Uh, we're going to call this Tokyo Jazz Joint's Greatest Hits, I think. It's kind of like our version of the Grammys. Uh, so basically what we've done is I've sent a list to James. Uh, we haven't shared any notes or any thoughts uh, in between. Uh, and what we've done is we've kind of uh, come up with some categories and we've decided, you know, what joint or joints or what things uh, that have been part of this crazy journey that that sort of fit best into these categories for us. So we're kind of do it. Uh, we're going to do it in a kind of a Grammys type style. We're going to take. I wouldn't, category go, I wouldn't by, go too heavy on the Grammys there, unless every winner is inappropriate for the category that it's in. But but sorry, that's my my music critic side coming out. Apologies. I mean, it, 
it may be that that actually is what happens anyway, <laughs> but uh, uh, it'll be interesting uh, uh, for me to see what you've chosen and hopefully uh, the feeling will be mutual. So that's what we're right. going to start we should, with We is- should tell the listeners, that's right, we, we've not um, exchanged our selections. Uh, all we did was was just review the categories, but we, we did not share the notes. So um, this is all going to be coming out for the first time. And yeah, well, it would be interesting to see if we've got any things uh, that, that match up. It also means, of course, that we have a we actually have a deliberate reason for not preparing so well uh, and communicating properly before we record. First category, James: weirdest experience. Weirdest experience. Take it away. We're going to start with you. What was your weirdest experience wow. in the Tokyo I Jazz mean, coming out, journey? Coming out swinging, man. This is a big category. This is a big category. Um, I may or I may have not spent about two and a half hours thinking just about this category. Um, and it was tough. I mean, obviously, you know, listeners have been with us. They know how many places we've been, how much traveling we've done, how much wacky adventures we've had. But for me, this was the clear number one. And it was we are in um, a, a small suburb of Chiba City on the east side of the Tokyo metropolitan area. And we're waiting for a place called Billy's to open. And uh, this is the last place of the day. <laughs> we've, been, we've been running around all morning, uh, all around Chiba, vast prefecture, okay, um, by train, by taxi. It's the summer. We're hot. Uh, we've had a lot of coffee and a lot of beer already. And Billy's isn't open yet. Maybe we're a little early. We can't get the opening hours straight. So we decide to walk around, try to get a bite to eat. And we stumble upon what I can only describe as a cafe slash library, which is devoted to Palestinian culture and food. Now, keep in mind that I've never met a single Palestinian person in Japan. Um, not particularly a hot topic among most Japanese people, uh, Middle East politics or social issues. And yet we come to this, this storefront, which has a big Palestinian flag, all of these books in English and Arabic um, and Japanese about Palestine, and they sell Palestinian beer. I had no idea that there was even a beer brewed um, in that country. And I, we walked in, and do you remember, I think it really did take us about 15 minutes to process what this place was. It was just unbelievably surreal. I mean, it was a tiny little cafe library devoted to Palestine in the middle of the drabest Japanese suburb. Um, of all the things we've encountered, I, I, I'd have to say that was definitely the strangest and, and actually really, really wonderful. It was amazing. And um, if you've heard, we, we, we did mention this in one of our Chiba episodes, but of course, we'd come that morning, I think, from a, an Egyptian-themed uh, jazz cafe, as it was, uh, Nefertiti, uh, full of all sorts of Egyptian iconography. So to go from that, uh, just a short hop across the border there uh, in Sinai to, to into Palestine was quite something. But again, yeah, absolutely bizarre uh, experience. I think we ordered some, did we have some hummus and olives did, and yeah, some beer? A, I mean, it was all very Palestinian. Exactly. We had, we had a little hummus, a little pita bread. Um, it was quite good, I remember. And, um, and yeah, we definitely had a couple of bottles of, of Palestinian beer. And, you know, it was strange because unfortunately that the person working there at the time wasn't the owner. We've, we've run into that several times with our jazz joints, you know, so we couldn't really get the whole 
the whole spiel of, of what this place was about. Because I think I asked one question, but I could kind of tell it was this young guy and he didn't, maybe he didn't really know. And I didn't really want to push it, you know. Um, but it, it, there were a couple of things that, that stand out about it. And I think we might have mentioned that, you know, earlier is that Japan has become more international. And you'll find even in the middle of nowhere, you'll, you'll find like very authentic Italian restaurants where the, the chefs have studied in Italy. Or you'll find like a salsa dancing school where the guy studied in Colombia. And you will find these pockets of things. But this was something um, very, very different. I mean, this was clearly the owner of this place had to if not an academic um, at some point would have studied I guess about Palestine and the history and culture because there were probably a good, I would say what a good 500 books in there yeah I mean it was it was it was, a, it was an extensive uh, kind of place absolutely and I think you forget as well you know sometimes we forget that you know Japan does come it, it sort of it, it has this kind of sometimes these immigration waves if you like and then they sort of roll it back a little bit so obviously you know there's a there's a huge brazilian population um in japan and there's there's historical links there were a lot of japanese uh, emigrated to brazil actually and i think it's the biggest uh, japanese population outside japan is actually in brazil but also there are areas of tokyo as well when you go to parks uh, um particularly around the, the northern part of tokyo that a lot of the signage still um is in persian and there was a period of time where a lot of iranians came i don't know what the reason was in terms of maybe there was some sort of reciprocal uh, visa agreement or something but there were huge areas um, of iranians and you can see that still just sort of like in certain ghost signs around um <laughs> around tokyo particularly in parks and things like that where the, the city has actually put uh, instructions and directions and so on and so forth in persian and i mean famously of course there was actually uh, in up in rapongi I know, uh, I think it, I presume it's still there, but up in Rapongi, uh, there was actually a Persian restaurant and Rapongi in that area around Azabu, of course, is full of a lot of embassies. So it makes sense perhaps that there'd be an Iranian restaurant there. But of course, then in the intervening years, they built this huge Rapongi Hills complex, which is, you know, this kind of city of the future with all these department stores and all sorts of various facilities and luxury apartments. And just across the road, of course, you know, you have this Iranian restaurant just still there from like a time gone by. And, and uh, you know, at one point, I think if I'm, if I'm not uh, getting the history wrong, you know, Japan very suddenly just revoked a lot of these Iranian visas. And of course, a lot of people had to return to Iran. But that, you can that's, still that see was completely, those. That's completely right. Because when we first came to Japan, I remember you, you definitely, there were more, um, you know, shopkeepers, cafes, um, a lot more Iranian students. And I think that, yeah, I mean, that, that probably goes into our, our other side podcast, um, Jazz and Politics. But um, yeah, from American pressure, I think that that ended. But um, it's interesting that you mentioned that about the restaurant, though, because that's right. Uh, pockets around Tokyo, and we've seen that when we wa we've wandered around looking for jazz joints all around the city. You know, so we've really experienced a lot of neighborhoods we'd never been to. And you do always tend to see one of these places pop up. Like, yeah, oh, it's a Brazilian one or a Peruvian restaurant or in Takadanababa where all the Burmese um, restaurants are, you know? But this location was just so strange. It, it was an extremely drab suburb. And I can't imagine who the customer base was for the joint. And, you know, we didn't we didn't follow it up. I've done no research since then. Um, I think we'll leave that as a mystery. But um, for sure, that that was the, the probably the single weirdest experience. We had a lot of weird jazz joints we went to, but this one really took the cake. Thought you were going to ask me what mine was, but okay, I'll just tell you. 
uh, the thanks for your interest. Thanks for your interest. Sound there for a second. <laughs> I mean, if they're, if they're if they're if they're looking for a, a presenter for the actual Grammys, I think they need to keep oh, looking. God, well, you can tell we're out of practice. So yeah, I, dead I air, wide open, wide open, dead air. So Philip, so Philip, <laughs> let's hear it. What was your weirdest experience? Well, thanks for asking, James. Uh, <laughs> I thought you'd never ask, literally. But um, yeah, well, I'll tell you what mine was. It, it, for me, I think this was probably pretty easy, actually, because. If you've listened recently to the five days in June um, adventure that we went on, uh, obviously after we left Kyushu, we returned to Tokyo and I was there for a few more days. So I was able to go to uh, a handful of other places, uh, both with James and with my uh, and by myself that I hadn't perhaps got to and I had on the list. And eventually I got to 40 places actually over the course of that three weeks. And I finished on what can only be described as a high because again similar to some of the other places that we've been to it was very much a, a, just a name on a list uh, a bit of a gamble and it was way out uh, in the wilds of, of Saitama and we've talked a lot about Saitama as being this huge flat fairly featureless compu com commuter not computer commuter belt uh, you know on the the sort of uh, north west side of Tokyo um, uh, and a prefecture in itself but again uh, it sort of has that kind of reputation perhaps of, of being somewhere that you maybe live and then commute to and from work and not necessarily somewhere that you would choose to go and live um, if you had other options and of course uh, I headed out and it's one of those places again where you're sort of looking on the map and you're thinking well it can't be that far and then when you look at the actual train timetable you're like how is it going to take me an hour and three quarters to get there uh, anyway I headed out it was a pretty hot day one of those 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 days when you're kind of walking around Japanese streets, there's a lot of concrete, there's a lot of air conditioners pumping out hot air, not a lot of tree cover, not a lot of shade, and you're just focused on getting from the station, particularly a fair-skinned lad like myself, getting from the station to the place without, you know, sort of frying up. And the place that I was heading for, of course, uh, was Rindo. Uh, and uh, it was the 40th place uh, on that trip. It was the last place that I photographed. I think the next day or the following day after that, I was heading back to Ireland. And well, what an experience it was because you can see from the photographs, if you look up Rindo on the uh, region section of the joints page, well, it, it's kind of, it's it's a little more than a shack, but not a massive amount. You know, you can see around it. There's much more uh, modern buildings. There's a couple of uh, quite well-appointed houses just behind it. Uh, and on the ground floor, there's the mysteriously named RIP, R-I-P. I'm not sure if that is uh, symbolic of the experience you have when you go there or just an accident, but uh, a classic sort of Japanese snack. Uh, and we can imagine what that's like. And then on the top floor uh, is this Rindo place. Now, James, I looked up the name and Rindo, actually, the first kanji I know refers to dragons, but actually Rindo... Um, itself is apparently uh, gentian which is described in english as an autumn bell flower did you know that um it would probably surprise you to know that i did not know that yeah no i mean your mm. flower knowledge is usually pretty good true true yes yeah. so you're, you're one my japanese uh, horticulture was one of the reasons i came here but um <laughs> what's interesting is i mean that's funny for so many reasons because um, can you think of a place uh, less uh, less worthy of, of of the delicacy of a beautiful flower than than the inter, uh, the interior of Rindo? I mean, it's just the perfect perfect dichotomy there. And you know, it's funny. I we'll get to some of that more in another of our categories.
categories. But yeah, I've regretted not going there. And I remember a couple months ago when we talked about it, I said, as soon as this damn pandemic ends, we can move around freely. I'll take the trip up. I mean, that would be a good two and a half hours from where I live. Um, needless to say, I've not made it back there. But I, I believe you had said that the owner there was maybe on the edge of being unable to open the shop much longer. Yeah, I mean, it was weird for many reasons. I mean, first of all, I was on my own. Uh, it was it was in the middle of nowhere in the suburban neighborhood. I was also conscious of, you know, it was one of those situations where you need to go to somewhere and spend some time in it. But also, if you don't do it in a certain time frame, you're going to be stuck out there for another two or three hours. And, you know, it's not an exaggeration to say there isn't much to do around the station. So I, I headed in. Um, it was open, incredibly. Um, and it, you go up the sort of very small narrow staircase and what you're met with as you can see from the photographs is this enormous uh, is jazz written uh, across this blackened window with white paint and then just above that there's an amazing sign written originally I think in either chalk or paint on a sort of a blackboard type material which says I'm very glad that you have come please enjoy the best jazz and coffee shop window and then really mysteriously just in the top right hand corner it says a grain of mustard seed. <laughs> now, I don't know what he was going for there oh, or wow. what he was getting at. But anyway, I headed in. And of course, yeah, you can see the owner. I mean, he's just oozing uh, personality and cool. And you can only imagine, uh, you know, the experiences and the stories that he has to tell. Uh, I got a photograph of him there, uh, you know, uh, puffing down on a cigarette. But he was fairly drunk by this point and this must have only been about probably two half two in the afternoon and again one of those places just full of incredible memorabilia but what was really interesting about it was that not only did he have this uh, incredible collection of VHS all you know beautifully catalogued uh, as we've come to expect from some of these places and a signed photograph of Archie Shep. Uh, the walls are also covered with drawings that he himself has done of various um, musicians. So we sat and chatted and, you know, it, it was like a cave-like atmosphere. I mean, it's so odd because you're, you're coming from this really stinking kind of summer suburban heat that, you know, anyone who's lived in a city in Japan will be very familiar with. And you go into this really small, pokey little um, cave-like space, which is, is quite dark, quite gloomy, certainly very, very dusty, and then just covered with this uh, insane amount of memorabilia. So we had a really good chat, uh, you know, uh, shared a few drinks. He did pass me some kind of food, which he, he'd made. And again, it was one of those things where I'm thinking... Do I want to be taking this, you know, twelve oh, you less know than twenty four hours you, you before told, I get on a on a plane? You totally um, know you took it, and um, I'm, that's not something that I regret missing. So, but um, anyway, what made it really, the, I suppose, just top off the weirdness of the whole day was, of course, um, at the end when I told him, you know, I had to get back to the train. He said, "Well, look, you know, before you go, I just want to give you something." So I looked around <laughs> this place and I thought, well. This is going to be insane because, you know, am I going to get one of these beautiful paintings he done? Am I going to get a signed photograph? Am I going to get one of these amazing, like, original stickers that he's designed uh, for the place, you know, hanging up above the bar? Uh, so he took me over to this corner, sat me down at this table, and he, put, he pulled out the sort of like a glass dish that you would get if you if you were in Greece, if you were an extra in the film Greece and you were sitting in a diner and you ordered an ice cream sundae with all the toppings, it's the sort of dish that it would come in. And he wrapped this up in newspaper 
And he pushed it across the table. And he said, you know, please, you must have this. And I had no choice. <laughs> I had no choice but to take it, obviously, out of politeness. I carried it all the way home in my defense. I, I, I gifted it uh, to uh, the friend that I was staying with in Tokyo because obviously I wouldn't want to take it on the plane and, and, and smash it or something terrible like that. And whether or not she still has it in her house, I don't know. I must check. <laughs> but it was really a weird afternoon. And it was just a beautiful uh, and very sort of strangely unsettling way to finish that whole trip and to photograph that 40th place. So that was my weirdest experience. It's perfect that that came um, wrapping up the very big journey as a great way to end end an adventure that at times was very strange and unexpected. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, it's funny, Rindal, I've asked people about that place and not a lot of people I know have been there. I think because it is so far out. I mean, I wouldn't even say it's a, a close suburb of Tokyo. It's really way on the outskirts and n not a place that probably even uh, people commute to work from. You know, yeah. into central Tokyo, it's that far out, so it's it's not really on the jazz radar of the usual suspects that we sort of follow on Twitter or Instagram, the Japanese guys who have the same crazy hobby that we do. Um, so it is kind of a very um, ephemeral, strange place for sure. It's residential, I'd say, definitely, but um, astonishing when you think of that. I mean, I'm just just we we can wrap up this category, but just looking at one of the photos there, you can see. You know, it's got um, that whole Sonny Rollins album, Way Out West, signed. Uh, it's got uh, his picture of Sadao also signed by him. Ray Brown's photograph uh, with a uh, signature up there at the top. Obviously, Archie Shep. And fairly recently, Archie Shep, it's it signed 2002. So these are not things from, you know, the 50s and 60s. Um, but, uh, yeah, fantastic place. So... Let's move on to our second category then, James. Uh, and this one, perhaps we don't want to dwell on this too much because, you know, it might bring the listeners down. Um, but I thought it was kind of worth uh, maybe adding it in as well, because obviously any journey, and particularly this one that we've been on together, uh, has its highs and lows. And many of those we've documented in the podcast already. But uh, the second category is biggest bummer, biggest bummer. And I, I think I'm going to start, uh, if that's okay, because, you know, obviously sure. if, I, if I'm waiting for you to ask me, it could be quite some time. Um, I, I think for me, and, and I don't want to get too political here, you know, because we've kind of steered away from that, you know, in the podcast, um, generally speaking. And, and I don't want to date uh, the, the podcast too badly either. But I do think for me, probably the biggest bummer is, in one word, samurai. And I don't mean um, the people. Uh, I mean, the place in Shinjuku that we've talked about. And I think, you know, perhaps I'm being judgmental. Um, maybe it's none of my business. Uh, and I'm open to that kind of feedback and that criticism. But I think, you know, we, and you particularly, I know, follow um, the owner of Samurai, who, you know, we've documented in a previous episode, ha had quite a qu close relationship at, at one point. And, you know, I know that he said a prayer to bless the birth of your son uh, way back when he was born and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, you know, it's just a shame now to see that someone who, you know, was probably very deeply involved in that counterculture of the 60s um, and, you know, is a, is a huge Coltrane fan and obviously uh, bought into that whole culture uh, of the music and, and everything that comes with it and has sort of now gravitated towards the sort of the more extreme and right-wing elements of Japanese society and obviously now is quite actively involved in 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 right-wing talk events and anti-immigration and, uh, you know, I suppose, I mean, not to beat around the bush, you know, racist kind of ideologies when it comes to 
to you know J- Japan and, and the existence of other cultures in Japan, and I just think it's it's kind of a shame, you know. And and there's something interesting about that very awkward contrast between the culture that we that that we're documenting in this project and then these other kinds of political ideologies. And I suppose. Again, we said in some ways, you know, in Japan, sometimes those things sit very comfortably side by side. You know, people are quite practical. They're quite pragmatic about their beliefs. Uh, and that, and you see that right through, you know, different kinds of Japanese religions and all that kind of stuff. But I suppose for me, it just doesn't always, you know, sit very well. And I know certainly even when we, when we first thought about uh, photographing Samurai, you were kind of wary about including it in the project. Uh, because of those reasons. And I think it's good that we did. It's good that we look at all sides of this culture. And it's also good, you know, just to for, for me, myself, to have seen it and kind of experienced it. But I suppose, I mean, bummer is not the right word, but there is definitely that element of, you know, it, it's a bit deflating and a bit disappointed to kind of see that now. But, you know, there you go. Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, and, and for listeners who want to hear more on this very complex um, place and, and discussion, um, you know, we did record a, a whole episode about it uh, back in the early days of the podcast. Uh, please go back and check that. I think it's episode number five, actually. But um, yeah, I, I would say it's it's funny when I was making my list of, of um, Biggest Bomber, this, this didn't even make it because... I think, um, as you mentioned, you know, Samurai was a regular place for me for so many years, and and I knew the guy so well. Um, it, uh, you know, would probably be a different category, more like biggest shock to find that he was simultaneously playing records, uh, jazz records about spirituality and and oneness and unity, and then on the weekend hosting a, a borderline hate speech event. Um, it was just yeah. so shocking, you know, so shocking. And uh, yeah, it still is. And, uh, you know, I don't, I, I think you said it very well. I, I can't even add to it. It's still something when I think about it, I get upset and, and just perplexed. And uh, and I tried to take the um, the view that, and I think I mentioned this on the episode as well, that some of his regular, long-term regular customers said to me, which was just, um, he, um, he switched sides politically. He's going off the deep end, just ignore him. He's going through a phase and they still go there and they still hang out and drink with him. And while not agreeing with anything he says, and as you mentioned, that's a very um, a, a kind of thing you see more, I think, in Japan, which tends to shy away from from open and and lively, noisy discussions about political things. Um, whereas in probably our countries, you know, you'd be in fisticuffs rather quickly, um, and that just doesn't happen here very much. So you know, that's how they're able to keep going there. I have stopped going there, as as we talked about, but um, yeah, I totally, I totally get it, and and I agree. I think it is good that we went to, to take the pictures, and it's good that we talked about it. Like not every um, place is going to have the friendly, wonderful grandfather that, that plays records for us, and we get on with perfectly. You know, uh, people are complex, and and um, no, we'll just leave it at that. Okay, well, not 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 to drag people any lower, but uh, very quickly then, what about you? Biggest bummer? Well, it's funny because you mentioned Samurai because my biggest bummer is right around the corner, um, and it is the closing of Jazz Pepe, mm. which is um, an absolutely well. I have to use the past tense now. It was an absolutely phenomenal basement uh, jazz dive, and I mean dive. This place was unbelievably old and dingy. And, uh, you know, for years, every time I'd walk by, I thought it was closed because the sign was never lit up and the sign was actually partially broken. Uh, 
Mm. Um, and then there was a window broken on the door. So I thought it was one of these abandoned shops that you see all over Japan. We've talked about a lot on this show, you know, when people just move on and the place just stays empty. Um, but, you know, we did get in one night. We happened to see uh, that, that there was someone down there and, and we went in and it was remarkable. Um, Okamura-san, the owner, was just the most lovely guy. Um, and, uh, we were so excited. And I remember at that time, you know, I, it was still not early in the project, but, you know, we were several months in and I think, uh, we got really excited to say, okay, let's, let's come back and, uh, and maybe shoot a little video here. We'll try to change something up with the, with the project, you know, and we mm. can use it on our social media or something and, you know, we'll do a little intro. We can interview him. Let's just try something different. And, uh, and he was totally up for it. And, uh, you know, we followed up by calling him a couple weeks later. Nobody answered. Nobody was there. We couldn't get in touch with him. Um, obviously, he was not on any sort of social media or the internet or email. And we went back to try and talk to him and we saw a sign on the door that said closed due to illness and uh we were like oh that's this is uh well gosh you know i mean i want did he write this sign is he okay i mean this guy was very very old and the place was due to close in a couple months time because they were going to tear down the building so that's one reason we wanted to rush back again and do our little video project um but we found out later on uh that he was forced to close even earlier than he had planned uh, due to illness and um we were never able to get back in and and that was that. And I I don't know what happened to him. Um, Okamura-san was one of these old jazz bar owners that pretty much spent his entire life working down in this basement joint. Uh, did not have uh, a family that we knew of. Um, and with his health getting a little worse, at, I think he was 78 at the time. Still chain smoking away and drinking whiskey every night. I mean, remember obviously, when we were there? Obviously. Yeah, I mean, in half an hour, I think he had two whiskeys and, and a whole bunch of cigarettes. But, um, you know, that, that lifestyle does take a toll after 45, 50 years. 50 years, yeah, because he opened a place when he was in his 20s. Um, so I think for me, that was the biggest bummer that we never got to go back in. And it was very much, I think, a, a case of sort of hidden in plain sight, wasn't it? Because I know we talked about it when we covered Jazz Pepe that, you know, you'd walk past uh many times and obviously uh famously the one of the window panes in the door was broken so there was kind <laughs> yeah. of that i there was that sense that it was just derelict and abandoned and yet yeah, the sign is out in the street so how we kind of managed to yeah. walk past it and then suddenly we really so it, it could have been in, in a different category perhaps as like the the craziest find as well because yeah, you know we, right. it was like, we went down that's that right. staircase and it was like damn what is this oh, you know my so, God. Yeah. well that was the thing because he was not he was nowhere online he was not in my um uh, japanese guidebook that Jazz Hiho magazine had published here in the early 2000s. They published a guidebook to a lot of the jazz drinks. It wasn't in there. It wasn't in any of the jazz magazines. So I had just completely assumed I, no one I knew had ever been there. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we just assumed, oh, it must be closed and they left the sign there. So it was, it was incredibly lucky that we were able to find it. Um, but then the bummer that we couldn't get back and shoot it. But at least you did get the pictures and the picture of him. He was, he was a real sweet dude. Well, I suppose bum is the perfect segue, James. And uh, <laughs> the next category, of course, is one that is particularly dear to your heart, um, as I still uh, am astonished at just how regularly it's used uh, in one visit to even one jazz place. But best toilet. What Obviously, you got? a very, very important topic for me, um, but a very easy one. 
uh, a very easy one. There's there's simply nothing even close to to uh, first place other than uh, the fantastic toilet at Big Boy, uh, and that name does not <laughs> have any connotations. Um, when I, I, I beg to differ, but anyway, it's, go uh, on. It's a uh, it's merely a coincidence, um, and Big Boy for two reasons, uh, three reasons I would say. Um, one, of course, it's very very clean, which is certainly not always the case in the jazz joints that we hang in. Number two, it has very soft lighting, but the best thing about it do you remember the cd tree he's got this amazing sort of mini tree in the bathroom which has, i can only think it's like cd art that he's put cd cases and whatnot on it it's just fantastic and it's funny because of, after we'd gone to big boy i think is when you started taking a lot in your jazz toilet uh, series of photographs which you've put up on the, not on the site but on your social media pages but i'm very interested to hear your choice for this because to me that i mean it was big boy number one by by a long long distance well obviously i've got less to choose from um, because I'm not in there as often. Uh, but uh, for me, it was a no-brainer, actually. Um, it was Pithecanthropus erectus. And oh. I said that without stuttering. Uh, because uh, it was the first one. And uh, if there's any... Um, uh, if there's any uh, Alan Partridge fans listening, of course, you'll probably remember from his uh, This Time uh, TV series, he did an, an incredible, or Steve Coogan did an incredible impression of someone getting in and out of a, a train toilet without ever having to touch anything by using your knees and your elbows and so on and so forth. And I think that's sort of what it reminded me of a little bit. You know, in general, it's quite often in Japan that you go into a toilet and, of course, you... Um, you know, have to sort of turn around on the spot. And then even when you close the door, it's touching your knees and it can all be very claustrophobic at times. And Pithecanthropus erectus was not only this kind of toilet, but it was also a, a traditional, you know, Japanese kind of squat toilet. So you, you sort of step up and, you know, uh, you don't actually sit down on anything physically. And of course, we had just, you know, it was the first night that we had started this project and it was all very uncertain and I wasn't sure and felt really uncomfortable, like taking my camera into the bathroom and it's just <laughs> all very very weird and then of course you know on the back of uh, the toilet door uh, was this image um, uh, scribbled in uh, black marker pens so it was a little bit faded in places which said freedom and jazz go hand in hand and then below it uh, monk who of course uh, has that famous exp uh, famous expression accredited to him. And I think for me, you know, it just summed up a lot of different things. And, and not only, you know, are, are a lot of the bathrooms uh, in the jazz joints just incredible places in and of themselves. I feel like as the project continued and we went to more and more places, it seemed at least to me that those kind of old style bathrooms that were graffitied, that were covered with old stickers and ticket stubs and varnished posters and all that kind of thing gradually started to to kind of vanish. And even if the, the place itself, if the aesthetic was very much like Pithecanthropus and it was grimy and dirty and all the rest of it, the one thing that people had spent money on was kind of refurbishing the bathroom and doing it up. So you'd quite often go from these very atmospheric 
uh, gorgeous spaces into a quite a sterile, you know, kind of train uh, station style bathroom sometimes. And I think so for me, Pithecanthropus erectus was, was that place. For me, hands down, best toilet, best bathroom, Pithecanthropus it, erectus. It was, on, it was on my list. Um, but, you know, I, I've been drinking there for several years before we, we, we went there that first night. And I've been in there in the summertime. And so I'll just leave it at that. Uh, it had to it had to be crossed off due to due to that experience. But um, yeah, the, the monk picture is certainly an important one for our project as we've used that for a lot of different places. And uh, yeah, honorable mention, of course, to Garrow um, in uh, Garrow in um, Mukogaoka Yuen, which was the, the jazz joint literally built in a tin shack. Uh, but as you mentioned, they upgraded their toilet for reasons completely inexplicable. I mean, the building is actually falling down, but they spent the money just to put in a brand new toilet. So honorable mention. Mention to, to the lovely people. Definitely a nominee for sure. Absolutely, <laughs> definitely a nominee. But uh, unfortunately, not winning that category for either well, of us. Speaking of uh, speaking of, of of Garrow, which is in contention for uh, for a very exciting category now, uh, the craziest find. Now, I think we may have interpreted this in different ways. Um, I was interpreting this as the craziest joint that we found, uh, but perhaps you were thinking something different. Craziest find. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, it occurred to me, I suppose it could be either. So uh, I'll allow you a little bit of flexibility because I know I, I was trying to tie you down to categories so that we didn't just end up waffling on for hours about all these different places and not actually, uh, you know, uh, choosing someone as, as, of course, you have to do in these kind of award uh, ceremonies. But uh, for me, it could be either a thing maybe that you found, um, the craziest thing you found in a joint or came across in a joint or could also be, um, the craziest place that we found. So do you want me to go first? Yeah, you go ahead. Well, I'd say uh, for me, the craziest find uh, in terms of things was something I covered quite recently in in uh, Hokkaido, which was, of course, the shoebox full of the, the negatives of Coltrane playing in Japan, just sitting uh, on a shelf. And I thought to myself, you know, this if there's anything more symbolic of just the sheer value and sheer pricelessness actually of of some of the memorabilia that exists in these places and of course in no way is guaranteed to be to be uh, kept safe or secure by whoever inherits that whether it's you know someone local or you know uh, or, or the children of the owners or god forbid you know the place gets uh, closed down or, or goes on fire whatever it might be and I just thought when he pulled these negatives out I thought you know what an incredible uh, of course, other photos of that concert exist, but he's got this complete set of Coltrane. He's so close to where he was playing. Uh, and I just thought, what an, an amazing thing to have. But also the fact that it's just in a shoebox that, that's brought out to, to show customers who have any interest in this kind of thing. So for me, that was definitely uh, the craziest find in terms of thing. In terms of place... It's really hard to say because a lot of the places, I think, James, particularly when we went further afield, you know, we were going a little bit blind. We had a name, we had an address and not much more. And and certain names like, you know, kind of threw us things, places like Fun Cool, we thought it's going to be rubbish. We never got to see inside, <laughs> but we have a pretty good idea that actually it probably would have been quite a cool place. But I think probably for me, just in, in terms of the sheer... Uh, aesthetic impact in terms of the sheer uh, experience of going inside and, and interacting with the people has to be uh, Naima uh, down in Kyushu. You know, we had that name. The only connection to anything that we had was that name, the address, and of course the fact 
that it's the name of Coltrane, uh, John Coltrane's first wife. So, you know, that's all we had. And really, it was a wing and a prayer. And of course, we arrived at this place. It was insane. It was this weird pyramid shape. And we talked about it recently, so I'm not going to go on about it. But we went yeah. in, you know, wooden beams. It had a loft space. It had that massive poster of Sonny Rollins. There was instruments everywhere. The owner was there, the owner's daughter, her daughter, uh, uh, who lived in America as and, and, and lived as a jazz drummer. And just everything about that experience, you know, and it could have been so different. And we took the chance. And in that particular instance it was a chance that paid off so for me craziest fine hands down naima and kyushu naima we, we're we're very much in sync philip as usual naima was on oh. my list but it's not number one um just a, a quick reminder to our listeners please please go back to the website under regions and find naima and uh <laughs> and check out when philip says pyramid he's not joking <laughs> when you see the shape of this building i mean it is just bizarre and remarkable an absolutely wonderful place um, yes, it was in my top three, uh, but I had to go. I'm going to start first with the, the craziest find uh, of a thing, and that was the master at jazz bar Tokidoki, who not only made his own homebrew <laughs> plum liquor. So that alone was like, wow, you, you brew your own. Uh, it's called umeshu in Japanese. It's kind of a plum liquor. Um, so not only did he make his own homebrew, which is, you know, you don't generally find that and, and you don't very rarely do you get a sample of it in the bar, but he drinks it out of out of like a, a beaker, like a, yep. the kind of thing you see like in chemistry class in high exactly. school. He's drinking it out of this round plastic kind of like beaker and uh, and you've got a great picture of him with a huge smile on his face drinking out of that. And I've looked at that picture so many times since we've been to this bar. And it makes me smile and giggle every single time. I, I, I've never, I mean, the combination of, oh, I make my own homebrew and I drink it out of this like plastic thing that I stole from a laboratory. You know, it's as if he stole all the brew making material as well, all the, all the equipment from some lab too. Um, that that was just, um, just inexplicable at the time and it still is um you know why <laughs> he runs a bar <laughs> he's got plenty of glasses why does he need to drink it out of a beaker just i think no i think sense. also for me just i mean we again we've mentioned so many of these places already in, in more detail and that was, but i think what what astonishes me more than anything is not only is it a pyrex beaker which i guess is what 500 mils it's nearly full like it's more than half full and anyone who's you know drunk umeshu or any kind of liquor you know that it generally comes in a measure but like you know it's not far off like three quarters of a pint of umeshu which you know and anybody's no matter how how much you can hold your drink that's an astonishing amount you know oh yeah that was just it's just great it might explain his really really lovely smile in the picture as well but um yeah that was that was what what took first place for me for craziest find of a thing um and going back to then the craziest place that we found uh, another one that we didn't know um pretty much anything about it was a, a side trip We've did a whole episode about going to the amazing Basie um, up north in Iwate Prefecture. Um, two episodes, actually, including your, your special story, Philip. Um, and while Basie was, was incredible for so many reasons, um, it wasn't necessarily a surprise. We kind of knew it would be that good, you know. But on the same trip up north, um, after Basie, we take a little detour um, again to the absolute middle of nowhere to a guy's house. 
where he has a cafe called Ray Brown. And I think you remember when we talked about Ray Brown originally in the episode where we went up north. We did a special episode about our trip up to north in Japan in one day. And we're going to get back to that a little bit later. Um, Ray Brown was was just kind of not really a priority. It was like, well, you know, I think we can fit it in on our way to Sendai. We might have to, like, take a taxi. But, yeah, okay. It was really casual the way we decided to go there. Yeah. And when we walked in, I mean... Look, we've talked a lot about how Japanese jazz bars are often named after the owner's favorite musicians, you know? So there's a lot of Mileses and Birds and Monks and even Mingus, um, Bill Evans, you know? But Ray Brown, it's like, oh, great. Okay, we'll get some love to the bass man. That's, that's, that's awesome. You know, the bass players are always left out. And uh, so this guy, you know, he's, this is his hero. It's not just his hero. This guy was like great friends with Ray Brown. As soon as you walk into the bar, you see a gigantic wedding portrait of the owner his (laughs) wife and ray brown and his wife so ray brown and his wife was at this jazz bar owner's wedding in japan at some point in the 1970s again the middle of nowhere and immediately it just raised a million questions of okay we're gonna have to sit and really talk with this guy because i'm just completely bugging out by this photograph it was a photograph it was a gigantic portrait you know just as soon as you walk in you know so i think that 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 to me was uh ray brown was was definitely the most unexpected place that that we went to and it was it was completely um the the exterior was completely black it was all black stained wood so like, you know, again, not not something you find in Japan, particularly it's usually creams and beiges and greys and those kind of like prefab houses. But uh, yeah, all black stained wood. Uh, so, you know, very, very um, visible, you know, really standing out in that kind of environment. And uh, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Like it was the maddest kind of thing, because obviously we're used to. Uh, owners having met uh, some of their heroes uh, were used to places being named after the musicians uh, that they love but we're never we're not really used to that level of like friendship you know and and mm. like you know you often see a picture of the owner at the gig you know and it's like they knew the promoter sometimes they promoted the gig themselves and you see a picture of them having drinks and and i mean that's always cool when you see you know an owner who is probably younger than we are right now, sitting at a table in the 1970s, uh, having sake with El- Elvin Jones, you know, or McCoy Tyner. That really, that makes, that leaves a really, really strong impression on you, you know? But to see something like this, where this guy has like basically a temple to his very good friend that, you know, that they came all the way to Japan for his wedding. Um, I mean, that was just, it, it, it opened up so much more because after that, we started to really realize that when these guys were, were bringing the musicians up to these rural parts of Japan, it wasn't just the gig. They were doing everything. They were taking them around, sightseeing. They were having dinner. They were probably sometimes even staying together and building a sort of a lifelong bond. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I was just knocked out. And also in a time, of course, when, you know, uh, most communication was probably done by, by letter you know, or or, or expe- very expensive phone calls. So it's even more astonishing, you know, in, in that context that th- this, these kind of relationships were established oh, well, you're, you're, and developed. You're forgetting, you're forgetting the fact that these guys can barely speak English too. Yeah. 
You know, I mean, uh, none of these guys really could have a very deep conversation in English. So, but they were able to bond over the music in such a great way. And, you know, I have read and it, it is a really touching thing because, you know, so many of these jazz musicians who, especially when they were younger, grew up in really tough conditions, um, really didn't get a lot of respect from the music industry, uh, certainly not from mainstream uh, white society for the black musicians. And then to come halfway across the world to a very, very different alien culture and to be treated with respect and, and, and admiration uh, for their artistic work and sensibility, it was really important to them. And, I, and that's why so many of these musicians, um, if not moving to Japan, used to come very regularly. We know quite a few married, Jap uh, married Japanese people. Um, and so if, for them, it was almost kind of a validation. It's like, yes, you know, I, I can be taken seriously. It's just I had to leave my own country to get it, unfortunately. But they came to Japan and they found a nation full of jazz fanatics. Mm. Great. Okay, look, James, final category for this episode. And um, this was an interesting one, and I'm really curious <laughs> to see what you've come up with. Um, okay, bearing in mind I had that a lot I, of trouble. <laughs> bearing in mind that I uh, chose these categories, uh, I'm going to start. Uh, the category, the next category we're going to cover is the most Philip or the most James thing. Um, so... Uh, I'm glad you're going first because then I maybe can change my answer depending on what you say. <laughs> so obviously, you know, um, it uh, it it kind of depends. You know, you're going to talk about me and I'm going to talk about you. And this was a really tricky one because obviously there's the um, there's the point in the evening uh, when the contact lens case comes out of the bag and <laughs> the glasses go on. <laughs> there's also there's also that point in the evening where. You know, a jazz joint owner asks a question two or three times, and then at that point, I turn around and realize that you're asleep on the counter, and actually, I'm not only <laughs> photographing, but I'm also uh, having to keep the owner entertained. Uh, but I realized then, of course, that there could only be one contender uh, uh, and one winner of this category. So the most James thing throughout jazz joints is getting in the way of the bloody photograph. <laughs> And the way that it works is very, very simple. We sit, we drink, we chat. And just at that point, when I get my camera out and decide, you know, okay, we've we built a rapport here, good time to start photographing. You jump up, you get your phone out, which of course, if you've lived in Japan, you'll know, uh, particularly with iPhones, you cannot switch off the camera shutter sound. <laughs> So not only are you now pointing your camera, your, your phone camera around the place, we can also hear this really annoying shutter click. And every single time I've just got something framed and I'm like, yep, who wanders into the picture? And it's the most annoying. <laughs> now, at least we have addressed this. And, you know, anyone who knows me will know I'm not shy about saying those kind of things so it's not this is not something that's obviously breaking news this is something that you're very aware of but what really brought it home to me and this is just quite unbelievable is that a couple of years ago i was contacted by um white lion publishing and they were putting out a book called um how to live japanese and you can find a link to that book if you're interested in the press section of our website and they wanted to put uh, one of the photographs from the project. So I looked and looked, and there's a particular type of photograph they were looking for. So in the end, I chose the, the amazing full house. 
um, in Tokyo. And uh, it was an interesting place in itself, of course, because uh, very, very eclectic uh, interior. And of course, it was the one place that uh, where I asked the owner uh, if I could photograph him. And he replied by saying, oh, no, you know, because by photographing me, you'll take away a little bit of my soul. <laughs> Um, I forgot. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, that's but, right. He did say that. That's the place out in uh, East Tokyo. Exactly. Yes, yeah. And of course, oh, right, right, so I right. got this photograph. I chose this photograph. <laughs> you know, I edited it, uh, did a bit of work on it, got it ready to submit. And only then did I notice that somehow <laughs> you had managed <laughs> to be in that photograph to, to, to the level of, of kind of like, you know, spy-like activity where I hadn't even noticed it myself in all that editing process. And as I sent the photograph, I was like, oh my God, James is in this photograph. And you know what? As a homage to you, James, I kept it in that it's in that book. So if you buy How to Live Japanese from White Lion Publishing, you'll see a photograph from Tokyo Jazz Joints and you'll also see James, as ever, getting in the way of the actual photographer. <laughs> you know, and it's funny because I, I, I'm I'm was convinced for a long time you thought I was doing it on purpose, but it was purely accidental every single time. I think I just must have some sort of like radar that just like you know the, what can I say? I'm attracted to the camera, but uh, <laughs> giving the people what they want is never is never a bad thing. Oh. <laughs> That's great. All right. Okay. What's the most Philip moment or thing? Very, very difficult. Um, there you. were a lot of things to choose from. Um, since I already mentioned on the previous, uh, our five days in June, just a couple episodes ago, your amazing attention to uh, hair care, even skipping coffee and breakfast so you could spend five minutes at the mirror to get your coif looking perfect uh, as we headed out for the day. Um, since I've already mentioned that, I'm going to go, um, and I think we've gone into this a little bit before, I'm going to go into the automobile. And uh, so nervous. And I'm going to cheat here. I know you said one thing, but it's got to be a two-part thing. The first was guilt-tripping me into singing along to Bohemian Rhapsody while you were driving in the hills of Kyushu <laughs> by saying, hey, look, the passenger has to sing along. It's the rules, okay? I'm doing all the driving. So you, you made me sing out loud to a song that I can't stand, even though I knew all the lyrics. <laughs> so we're riding through the hills of Kyushu, um, and I, I find myself uh, singing at the top of my lungs to Queen. Um, and the second thing was the same day when we pulled into, I think we were coming into uh, maybe into Kurume on our way to, uh, to Kurume City, to the jazz joints there. And uh, you slowed down to let this guy who was kind of like, you know, crossing at the pedestrian, it was kind of weird who would go first, turning you or him or whatever, and you stopped to let him go. And then he looked into the car and he started going really slowly and you just lost it. Like, well, come on now, don't take advantage, man. Because he was taking too long to cross the crosswalk. And I remember <laughs> thinking like, oh man, my man needs to like seriously get back on the subways here. He's starting to lose it driving, yelling at this old dude because he was too slow to cross the road. I'm surprised, I'm surprised he, I they didn't shout, an, uh, uh, you should get a license. That's that's one of my favorite I, road I, rage. Well, you know, I didn't, I didn't didn't want to say anything because I was thinking like, okay, you know, he's been driving for like 28 straight hours and I've just been <laughs> sitting here napping. So I'm not going to get pissed off at it. But 
but um, I, I believe you used, I wish I had written it down. I thought you'd use some sort of like uh, Irish expression or a slang that I was not familiar with to disparage this gentleman. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was hysterical. Anyone and, who uh, knows me that's that. listening will know that I'm an incredibly, probably patience is one of my biggest virtues. So, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I resolutely reject that uh, suggestion that in any way I was annoyed at other drivers, but um yeah, you know, you had the easy part. You know, you're just sitting in the uh, sitting in the uh, passenger seat there, rummage about in your bag for tissues or contact lens fluid or whatever the hell you've got in there, and uh, you asking know. you to stop at a convenience store so I can <laughs> yes. go to the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, uh, fair enough. That's not as bad as I uh, as I as I feared. So I'm glad that it was uh, something that's at least a little bit endearing, perhaps. Uh, although you might not say that if you're in a car with me. Anyway, um, so yeah, that's our five categories for today, James. Um, amazing. Um, biggest bummer, weirdest experience, best toilet, craziest find, and the most Philip or James moment or thing. I'm looking forward to the next episode where we're going to cover another, I think, seven categories it is in total. And of course, we're building up to that question that we're always asked without fail. What's the best place that you've been to. And uh, I've forced James, despite his protestations, to choose one out of the over 200 that he's been to. Uh, and together, uh, as part of this project, we visited over 160. So it's no mean feat to whittle that down to one, but just for the fun of it, we thought, and someone's got to win. Uh, so we're going to go uh, and finish off with our well, favorite. Well, I'm, I'm down to I'm down to eighteen now, so oh, I'm, I'm getting there. Start. I'm getting there. So it's it's good. We got another week. I've, I'm down to eighteen, and I will slowly whittle it away uh, to get down to to the Grand Prix uh, winner. Well, listen, James. In the meantime. Um, you take care of yourself. Uh, listeners, in the meantime, please go and check out the photographs of the places that we've been talking about today. You can find them all on tokyojazzjoints.com. Um, uh, you can find us, of course, on social media uh, at Tokyo Jazz Joints. Stay with us. We've got some really exciting plans uh, for this year ahead, regardless of what happens in the wider world in terms of pandemic vaccinations and all those things that we've been obsessed with for what's nearly a, a year already now. Uh, please uh, stay tuned. Uh, and James, in the meantime, you take care. Have a good week and I'll talk to you next week, same time. So great to be recording again, buddy. Talk to you soon. Music.